Thanks for joining us at the CFITrainer.net podcast, brought to you by the International Association of Arson Investigators. I'm Rod Ammon. Today we have a special guest, and from what I've been told by Kathy, who's one of our premier writers around here, she said, Rod, he doesn't need a, uh, an introduction. He wrote the book. He literally paved the way. He questioned conventional wisdom. He sometimes took unpopular positions, and he has devoted his life to the profession of fire investigation. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. John DeHaan. Well, thank you for that very nice uh, introduction. Obviously, Kathy's uh, read the book and uh, seen some of the, the bloodshed that's, re- <laughs> that's resulted from it. I think there's, what, there's been seven editions? How many? Yeah, I've been responsible for six uh, since 1982 and 30, 35 years and kind of scary to think of it and that's those terms but yeah six editions have been mine and you worked with that uh with dave icove i think also on that correct? only in the last edition okay yeah, i was uh my batteries were running kind of low and i just couldn't take on another uh, revision solo so dave stepped in to, to help make sure it happened all right so how did the name kirks come about the first book uh first college level textbook on fire investigation was written by Paul Kirk uh, as uh, as a scientist. He's the first scientist to actually author a book on fire investigation. And Professor Kirk was a professor of actually officially biochemistry and criminalistics at University of California at Berkeley. As part of that, he had a a, a private consultancy. He did cases uh, all over Northern California. In fact, across the U.S. And one of his favorite things was the chemistry of fire. So in 1969, he authored the first textbook on fire investigation, actually written by a scientist rather than a a police detective or a a firefighter or insurance investigator. And it was pretty, it was modestly successful. It stayed in print for 11 years. Professor Kirk himself died in 1970. And then in uh, 1980 or 81, the publisher came to me and said, we understand you know a lot about fire and you write pretty well, <laughs> so would you be willing to uh, take on the book? And I said, well, what of the original text do I have to retain? And they said, you can, all you have to do is keep Dr. Kirk's name associated with the title. Other huh. than that, it's yours. Well, it turns out the book was so soundly written as a, as a teaching textbook, logically developed from the simplest concepts right through fire development and fire dynamics and things like that, as we knew it in the 1980s, at least. And as a result, I kept the outline of the book. In fact, I'm sure Dr. Kirk would have recognized um, almost all of the the major headings right through my uh, development and ownership of the book. And it went from about 250 pages in a small format book to almost 800 pages of a large format textbook at the end of its uh, span. Did the first edition of the book in 1982. I tried to avoid u- using the term science at all, or even uh, what we would recognize today as the scientific method. I think I called it the analytical method because I didn't want to scare the readers off by saying, well, yeah, this is science and you, you need to know it. That's what I built the book on, was as the science improved, our knowledge of fire processes improved. I set hundreds and or at least participated in hundreds and hundreds of fire tests involving all kinds of materials and ordinary combustibles and we were going through a kind of a revolution in fire investigation training at the time thanks to some 
very forward-thinking investigators here in California especially. So we do live burns, but instead of presenting our students with, you know, a cold burn and saying, okay, I told you what you should look for, get in there and dig for it, they were there from the start. They helped set up the, the rooms, they watched the fire, and then they dug them back out. And that was an important learning step because they were always afraid, apparently, that we were going to, you know, that the instructors were going to play games and hide things and stuff like that. And you said, well, why, you know, we saw the fire. That's the point. You know what was in the room. You know how we started it. You got to watch it develop. You saw the temperatures when we were able to measure temperatures. Now, what's left? Mm. Geez, you know, look at those burn patterns. They look just like ignitable liquids. Yeah, you saw how we started the fire without any ignitable liquid, didn't you? Oh, I should be more careful about calling those patterns. Yes, you should. <laughs> and that's that even today is a challenge. People, um, I just had a, a well-trained, pretty experienced fire investigator call me, and he had pictures of this burn pattern on the floor in a very seriously burned house with a fatality. And he said, you know, this looks like a poor pattern. And I said, yeah, I know it does. And then I sent him half a dozen pictures of fire tests that we had done over the years that looked just like floor pad, poor patterns on the floor, and they weren't. They were driven by flashover. And the way the hot gases move and the way the ventilation affects it and things like that. And he said, you know, we, we had this pattern, and it had to have been ignitable liquids, but the dog didn't alert, and, the, you know, there were the lab samples we took uh, you know, were negative, and I said, well, it's probably because there wasn't any ignitable liquid there. That was a major deal over the years. I started I started as a, as a lab scientist responsible for analyzing the fire debris, and when I would turn back negatives <laughs> to, the, to the investigator, they go, well, that can't be negative. What's, what do you mean it can't be? Well, I, you know, I took that. There was a burn pattern right there. It had to have been ignitable liquids. Well, there's nothing there. Well, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with your equipment? There's nothing wrong with me or my equipment. There's just nothing there. And that's when I started saying, why did you pick that spot? Well, I had this pattern. Uh, and as a, you know, my, degree, my original degree was in physics. And I said, you know, you have the heat transfer issues, and that's what's causing those patterns, I suspect. It didn't have anything to do with an ignitable liquid. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I always hear in your voice is passion. And, and I'm sitting here, you know, I was uh, going to ask you, you know, how you got into fire. And, man, you, you went off flying. Um, and, I, and I love that. Uh, and, but, I, but I would like to know, you know, like you just said, your, your background was physics. Uh, how did you get into fire? Um, I got bored with physics in, <laughs> in so many words. I was a physics major. Um, I, I intended to be a scientist from, you know, about the age of 10 or something like that. And the science fair projects led to physics program at University of Illinois at Chicago Circle. And I was put into, I was an undergraduate research assistant in high-energy physics, you know, cutting-edge physics uh, research. And I watched, I participated in this for about two years, and I thought, this isn't helping humanity at all. You know, we've sort of half proven the existence of an exotic particle that not two dozen people in the world give a fig whether there's a particle or like that or not. There's got to be a better way to use the science. And, of course, you know, a typical child of the 60s, I said, well, you know, what else can we do? So I started casting around, and I 
just on a fluke, I took an introduction to criminal law course in the criminal justice program. And all the other students in the class were, you know, uh, we're going to be cops and, you know, FBI agents and stuff like that. And they looked at me and they said, you're a scientist. Yeah. Well, you need to stick around and listen to the guy that teaches the next class in this room because he's a scientist. He's a criminalist. Well, this was 1968. Nobody had ever heard the word criminalist out in the, out in the normal world. And I said, what's this all about? So I sat in, and Professor Joe Nickel, I had just retired as the head of the Illinois State Crime Lab. He had been in the field since 1941, except for years in the Navy during the war. And uh, he had a degree in chemistry and a master's degree in physics. Wow. And we linked up, and my world changed. I said, you mean I could use my science and I could solve crimes? I love Sherlock Holmes. You know, and I thought, oh, this is, this is great. And I was hooked. It was too late to change majors, which turned out to be a very great advantage because I, <laughs> that program at Illinois was one of the toughest programs in the, in the university. And you got physics, you got optics, you got including the mathematics, which is what really scared me off. Because um, uh, I did okay until partial differential equations, and I said, "No, we're not going to make a life doing <laughs> doing these calculations." And you know, I got I got hooked on applying science to crime scenes and criminalistics and solving crimes, and I was done. So as soon as I graduated, I started looking for a job in criminalistics. We're glad there's guys like you out there taking those classes. Uh, and and I was going to ask you you know, why you call yourself a criminalist and how that has affected you through your career. Um, that's different than a lot of the other people that I've seen either call themselves investigators or, uh, you know, scientists. Um, why did you decide to go with criminalists and, and how did it affect some of the casework that you did? Well, the, the word actually uh, was an invention, uh, creation uh, from Hans Gross, uh, who wrote the what's considered to be the original textbook on scientific crime investigation in Germany in 1887. And it comes from the German of, of basically scientific techniques applied to criminal investigations. And it was common in the, on the West Coast. It wasn't so common in the, in the Midwest uh, where I grew up, but it very rarely did you know, people talk about it. But it turned out to be an advantage being a, a physics major because... Just at that time, the late, very late 60s, early 70s, when I started, the instrumentation revolution was on. And there was funding from LEA and other programs to see what all these exotic techniques could do. So when they started filtering in the laboratory, I said, well, I know about x-rays, I know about optics, I know about uh, spectroscopy. And my lab manager looked at me and says, well, get in there and start working with those instruments because you're one of the few that do understand it. You know, that led to basically especially in trace evidence. I didn't get any biology in college, so I'm glad I was able to stay away from the blood typing and, and uh, other squishy things. And people say, gee, what's trace evidence? And we <laughs> used to tell people it's everything that doesn't bleed, shoot, or get you high. <laughs> and... That covers a lot of ground, including you know fire debris and explosion, uh, explosives uh, residues and hairs, fibers. I did shoe prints and tool marks, and I did eventually qualify in firearms and things like that. But wow. I was basically the trace guy, and that's where that's where fire and explosion cases ended up. And 
meeting the investigators and then going out to scenes and going, eh, this doesn't look quite the way we think it should. And that led to a career-long conviction that there is a better way and by getting the science in here, getting the data, and that's, that was where the uh, link up with these uh, training classes that we, you know, we've burned all kinds of stuff from, you know, garden sheds to schools and churches and all kinds of stuff and small spaces and big spaces and with all kinds of fuels. And we were able to show investigators what the time frames were. You know, there was a lot of mythology uh, when I first started because there was, geez, in the late 60s, Carter was probably the only book out there on fire investigation. Hmm. And most of the stuff in, in Carter was based on looking at stuff after the fact and saying, oh, this is my, must be what happened. No. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just did a kind of a history review of my career for um, the Founders Lecture for my Criminalists Association just last month. And I got to thinking about it, uh, you know, these people, that, these youngsters that come along with these career plans. And you go, I didn't have any career plan. I never took a promotional exam. I was just there and, you know, there was a there was another opportunity, another offer that got me away from the, <laughs> the administration and I had pretty well cheesed off at each place because <laughs> I was an independent SOB back in the laboratory. You know, they said, well, analyze it and figure out what happened and apply good science and you know that's what that's what we expect of you and we're not going to we're not going to pressure you as to finding a, an answer one way or another just apply good science and sometimes the answers didn't come out the way the investigators would have liked and when they dared complain to the administration the administrators all said nope he, he did the right science that's his he's got the expertise so that's the answer you're going to have to live with. That's excellent to hear. And it's, you know, that independence is so important, especially with science. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to hear you were an SOB. Sounds like it was a good plan. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably drove, you know, three generations of lab chiefs uh, to, uh, to distraction. But, That's okay. You know, we got, we got good answers. And, you know, it's kind of nice seeing justice done. And that you know, that, what's interesting is I spent 29 years in law enforcement crime labs, and uh, I had been criticized that uh, I was a pro-prosecution, you know, advocate, and I, I, I always testified for the prosecution. I pointed out that I worked for forensic lab for law enforcement agencies, and if my answers were negative, there was no case. Right. <laughs> So they wouldn't be calling me to present, you know, evidence in a non-case. Obviously, a lot of my conclusions, you know, came out in favor of the defense, and the investigators had to live with that. And then, of course, as an independent, the last 18 years or so as an independent, I've done a lot of defense cases. And the good news is that a lot of them were the police or fire original investigations were, were good, were sound. And I would tell my client, I would warn every client, no matter who it was, before I accepted their case, you're going to get my answer, good, bad, or indifferent to your case. And I'm pleased to report, in all those years, I never had a public agency, police, fire, prosecutor, or public defender, or for that matter, defense attorney, ever hesitate. They go, that's what I want. I want the answer. I want the you know correct answer. And we'll deal with 
If it's bad news, it's bad news, and we'll deal with that. And that was my litmus test. There is a certain segment of my clients that didn't want to hear that. <laughs> and I, as a result, I didn't get any repeat customers from that from that quadrant. And you go, huh, that's interesting. And and I've I've ended up doing cases for like major corporations. They've called me as uh, to look at another case, even when I've found against them. You know, when I when my conclusion went against their their interests, they would call back and and say, you know, yeah, I realize that, but the company wants you, so get your butt to wherever, <laughs> wherever, and look at this fire or explosion or whatever. Nicest and compliment there was, is. That was, you know, that was good news. And so now, you know, I get, uh, I've been trying to retire for the last year, but I get these requests on especially innocence project cases, and I was on the Texas State Fire Marshal's case review panel for two or three years, and you'd see these cases that were done in the 80s and 90s and even close to 2000 and they were just wrong you know they, they reached the wrong conclusions and, and so i you know it's kind of obligated to put my oar in the water and say you know that's wrong <laughs> and some of them have been really egregious and the amazing thing is how long it takes for the system to correct its errors and you have people that are in prison for 20 and 25 years and then you say nope <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't arson and they go oh maybe we should retry this boy well you can't replace the 25 years but at least you can get the you can get the record clean uh, you know sorted yeah i mean so somebody wow. asked me if, a few months ago about you know what are your favorite cases and i said you know it's really kind of split now between between some of these uh, Innocence Project post-conviction appeals and putting the bad guys, you know, the, the, the right bad guys away for the right reasons. Because I've dealt with some really awful people in the, in the years, you know, especially the bombers. The bombers are just the scariest people imaginable. Because you can run from most fires. You can't run from a bomb. And the good news is that... that Bombings, criminal bombings have dropped off a lot in the last, actually, the last 15 years or so. Since since 9-11, there's been a notable decrease in the number of criminal bombings. It's interesting. Even the gangs and stuff have, have said, well, Molotovs will have to do. We're not going to put any more pipe bombs in people's mailboxes or through their front door or whatever. Hmm. Uh, that's not true in, in some other countries. <laughs> So um, when you think back, you know, I, I, I was going to ask you about your first case, and uh, well, I'll let you pick. You know, what was your first big challenge, or, or do you want to talk about uh, one of your most interesting cases that surprised you? Yeah, I was expected to testify for the defense in a, in a high-profile bombing case against the police department as the target in a big city. I was doing it for the public defender there. And for a variety of reasons, they were going to do their voir dire over the phone prior to me actually going to the city. And DA calls, and he says, I have your CV here in front of me. And I thought, oh, here we go, 52 pages of questions. You know? <laughs> he said, well, you don't seem to have had much in the way of formal training in the area of explosives or bombs. And I said, no, that's true, not a lot of formal training. Well, how long have you been doing this uh, in terms of bombs and explosives? And I thought, mm. I said, my first 
bomb case that I can remember was 1972. <laughs> and there was a long pause, and I heard him mutter, it's longer than I've been alive. And I said, and my turf included Berkeley in the 70s. We got a lot of practice. <laughs> and that was, that was actually a, you know, a significant case because it was, as far as I know, the first identification of a liquid binary high explosive. Wow. And it was a bit of a mystery to sort out. And I found the right guy who said, oh, yeah, organic amines and nitromethane. Yeah, that's what we use in the nuclear weapons. <laughs> that's the trigger. And you go, oh, how strong is it? And he said, oh, 95% uh, TNT strength by weight. Wow. Good. Luckily, these mutts never had a chance to set it off. They, they developed, they, the police found their bomb-making facility and their armory before it, uh, before they could take any action. So uh, that was, but that was, you know, that was the start of, uh, this explosive stuff is pretty neat, but 1970 or 72, there was no, virtually no formal training for forensic scientists in, in explosives. In fact, I, I considered volunteering to go to Northern Ireland for a year to find out more because they, they were having lots of experience in the laboratories dealing with explosives, but that didn't, that didn't work out. And so I ended up with them as colleagues and learning a lot from them kind of secondhand. So where do you think the profession's heading? You've, uh, you've had a long career and you've seen it go from, you know, I mean, when I got involved working with you all, it was in the, in the 90s, and I've seen a whole lot change since then, but your picture is uh, <laughs> twice as long, at least, <laughs> and and you must have a good insight into where you think it's headed. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think you know, criminalistics in general um, is is having issues now with um, uh, with the government stepping in and and organizing these vast, complicated layers of committees and and uh, processes uh, and, and limiting the kind of tests that we can do and stuff like that. And I think that's wrong, um, largely driven by the defense bar. And I, it's only a, a partially a joke that, you know, the reason they got behind all these, pushing for all these reforms is because we were putting too many of their clients in jail over the years. Um, yeah, there have been errors, and certainly in criminalistics. Uh, in laboratory methods and things like that, because types of evidence, especially in the trace realm, had limitations that we weren't aware of when we started, you know, testifying about about how unique something was or what it indicated as far as a source and uh, things like that. But fire investigation uh, has improved enormously uh, as a profession in terms of its accuracy. Uh, of course, the big first step was getting people to admit that there are undetermines out there. And, you know, for years, the Enfers, you know, system didn't accept, uh, didn't accept undetermined. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was either arson or accident, or, sorry, incendiary or, or accidental. And investigators were making calls, you know, because, well, they had to fill in a box, but, geez, if I call this a an incendiary event or arson, then, you know, a whole bunch of other things are going to happen and the police are going to get involved. And, and so I just, we just wrote it off. They just wrote it off as accidental. Hmm. And, and many of them knew that they couldn't really defend that conclusion 
because they weren't sure. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the knowledge uh, base to to make those calls. But today, it, it has it, it has changed enormously. Certainly, Kirk's kicked it off in the 80s when it started being recognized as an authoritative source. And yeah, I didn't get a lot of grief from investigators about, well, you destroyed this indicator and you took this one away from us. And you know, what are you going to destroy on us now? Because you're taking away all my tools. And I said, well, you just have to understand the limitations of those tools. And everybody wanted it simple. Fire investigation has never been easy. It's a very complicated process, chemically and physically. Our environments are, you know, very complicated. And as things burn, they change and make different kinds of contributions to, to a fire. And everybody wanted this, you know, red flag system, a cookbook, that if I see this, it means it was incendiary. If I see that, it means it was accidental. Right. Well, you can't do that. Uh, fire is way too complicated. And so in the early 80s, you know, we had some, we had some textbooks out there that, you know, tried to establish this cookbook. And then I came along and said, no, you have to understand the science. Oh, my God, no, we can't, we can't do science. You know, I flunked science. I hated chemistry in, in high school. You go, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're going to be a fire investigator and come to the right answer, you're going to have to learn. It's interesting and how so, scared we are of, yeah. of math and science. And, yeah. Uh... And, and that, you know, then I, I ended up on the 921 committee for 10 fun-filled years or nine fun-filled years. And realize that, you know, the people on the committee were trying to do the right thing and, and steer investigators towards the right answer, defensible answers, scientifically accurate and scientifically defensible. And we got in so much trouble in the first edition that uh, came out in 92 that NFPA called us in, you know, basically uh, called us on it and said, we've had so many complaints about the language in 921. We said, what's wrong with it? Well, you, you preface many of the state, statements about indicators as it is a common misconception that. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, we've had so many complaints from fire service investigators saying, you know, well, that's what I believe. And here you preface every, every discussion as to it's a common misconception that. And for years afterwards, if you wanted to break the tension in a in a meeting, you'd drop that line, and all the old hands on the committee would laugh, and the newcomers would go, "Why? What? What's that all about?" Well, we had to <clears throat> kind of soften the language, um, and that was the that was the attitude of the original committee. You know, we want to keep people from making mistakes, and we want to show them the right way. It's and interesting. It's a lot more complicated than a cookbook. And I was amazed when they said, "We're going to use the S word. We're going to call it science." Oh, my God, good luck. And so, yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, what, 25 years of, of grief. Uh, you know, and even IAAI said, oh, no, it's not a scientific inquiry. You know, it's, it's, a, tech, it's a technology. And you go, no, it's not. <laughs> it's science. And they were finally forced to back up a bit on, on that claim. And now, you know, it's fully endorsed. Well... You know, the good news is that, yes, our determinations are a lot better. They, we saw it in the Texas State Fire Marshal Review Panel. We started looking at reports that their investigators had done, say, 2010. And then they, you know, revised all their training. They upped the requirements. Some of their old hands retired and said, I can't, I can't learn this new stuff. 
And the state fire marshal, uh, Chris Keneally, said, well, there's the door. Thanks very much for your service. But if you, you're not going to do it the right way, you're not going to do it here. And so by the time we finished looking at, at some of these reports, current reports, we went, man, these are, you know, these are a whole world above what they were before. The scene processing was better. The documentation was better. The analyses were better. And, uh, yeah, there was a higher percentage of cases where they said, we don't know, but that's, that's the reality of science. We, we don't know in some cases. I think, in general, fire investigation is better, much better than it was, you know, even 25 years ago. I was laughing because I, I remember the cookbook, you know, it was the, uh, the spalling. I remember spalling and the crazing of glass, I think, were, were my two spalling favorites. and crazing and uh, proof of high temperatures. You know, if you melt aluminum and you melt copper and stuff like that, it was unusually high, and therefore it had to have been accelerant. And go, no, you know, I can produce 1,900-degree Fahrenheit rooms, uh, fires in rooms any time I can push a fire towards flashover, no matter what's burning. And time frames, if the fire went to full development in a room in less than 15 minutes, it had to have been accelerated. That was the red flag. It was too fast. Wow. So, I, as you know, when I hear somebody say this, I say, well, how fast is a normal fire? Well, I don't know. Well, how many normal fires have you actually watched from start to finish? Well, none. <laughs> well, then what's your basis for saying it? You know, so we'd drag people out and we'd set fire to a room with a match and a wad of paper onto a sofa or a modern bed, and it would be fully involved in three to five minutes, and they're going, that's really fast. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. That's how fast modern stuff burns, you know, and how energetically. So, And then the cigarettes in the garbage can, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And cigarettes, you know, can light everything. And, of course, now we have the mythology, <laughs> thanks to our government, that uh, we have fire-safe cigarettes. And, you know, I've had investigators um, say, well, I can ignore cigarettes now as an ignition source. No, you can't. Well, FSC means fire safe. No, it stands for federal standard compliant. It has, in that test that it passes, has nothing to do with how, how, uh, how readily it will ignite real fuels. Oh. And uh, luckily, the Consumer Product Safety Commission came out with a, a, a beautifully done paper uh, research project a couple of years ago showing how FSC cigarettes had exactly the same propensity to start fires in real-world hmm. cotton-based fabrics <laughs> as the unsafe cigarettes. And, and we now have furniture manufacturers trying to back off, uh, trying to back away from the requirements for fire retardants. In, in their furniture, saying, well, we have fire-safe cigarettes now. We don't have to protect uh, the furnishings from cigarette ignition. Mm. Hmm. And so, we now have a government that's willing to uh, back up that kind of uh, rationale. Gee, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt your, your profit margin. Um, if you have to add, a, you know, you have to add a step, you have to add a layer of fabric or whatever you're going to do to keep it from igniting, then we'll... You know, we'll abandon that requirement. I sure hope not. Well. I was going to ask you, you know, what worries you the most about what's going on in fire investigation? I think I might have just, uh, just heard one of the answers. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an odd 
combination, basically, of worried about the political influence on standards and, and uh, regulations and stuff like that, that we've worked really hard to improve, and we do have a much safer fire environment in our homes and our factories and our cars and stuff like that uh, than we did 20 years ago. But the other thing is, at the kind of the other end of the spectrum, is the pressure that everything has to has to go by 921. And in fact, my own book, I've abandoned uh, Kirk's because my co-author decided that you know it it had to, everything had to be in lockstep with with 921. So he's abandoned my the glossary that I spent you know 25 years developing. Hmm. Well, I said, why are you doing that? Well, because some of it conflicts with 921, so I'm just going to use the 921 glossary. I said there are errors in the 921 glossary. Well, people are being challenged because they're reaching conclusions that aren't supported by 921 or are offering opinions that aren't supported. I said that's wrong. There are reasons why. You know, 921 is not the font of all knowledge. And, oh, geez. So The challenges go on. We've, you know, we've gained the... Uh, We've gained a lot, but we got to be careful now to, you know, we don't forget the science. And the science, well, scientists have always been independent, you know, people challenging, you know, from the outside. And uh, the churches and governments and stuff like that that control things weren't real happy <laughs> in many instances with scientific conclusions. When, they, when they're offered an out, they can say, well, we'll just make it, we just, we'll just ignore that. You know, everybody follows this rule. Ooh, ooh, no. Yeah, but we're real happy um, that we've got people like you. I, I, I can speak, you know, for all the folks that I know in the fire investigation field that I see at some of these tests and, uh, and it live burns in all kinds of places. There's no more excitement um, than there is when, it, when somebody's around a fire or there's science being involved, you know, whether it's measurements of temperature, uh, whatever's, whatever's happening, happening in their tests. Mm-hmm. The excitement is really there, and, and, and you've been part of making that happen. Yeah, I remember one test that we inadvertently created a lot more excitement than we planned. We were trying to recreate, uh, for I want to say it was National Geographic's, one of their programs, and they, we were trying to recreate a spontaneous human combustion, infamous one from the, like, the <laughs> 60s, and they had to substitute a different kind of box spring. And the fire engineer at the Bureau of Home Furnishings came to me and he says, um, be careful. He said, those box springs can, can generate 800 kilowatts all by themselves. Whoa. And he said, you know, be, be really careful. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm monitoring it. So I'm kneeling in the doorway of the test room. And I, the, the fire's going really good. We had a 200-pound pig carcass in the bed. And, you know, it was growing on the bed and, and for about 17 minutes. And then because of the angle of, of the position of the door, I could see that box spring ignite, and I, could, I thought, and it's going to draft right against, you know, the, the flames are going to come out the other side of that mattress. And I'm watching the dresser, and I said, if the dresser ignites, it's over. It's going to go all the way. And I saw the flames hit the dresser, and the dresser ignited. I turned to the cameraman, and I said, time to go. And they bailed out. I turned around to see what was happening, and the, and the layer ignited right over my head, <clears throat> singed all my hair. <laughs> and <clears throat> um, we set a new record that day. That's 
facility was not to ex- exceed 1.2 megawatts. And the engineer came out and he handed me the 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 the, uh, the analytical report. And he said, "Congratulations, you've set a new record: 2.5 megawatts." Oh. Wow. He said it fried every single one of our air pollution filters. You owe us $1,200. <laughs> it also set off the fire alarms in the building, and they evacuated the building. And, you know, of course, the fire crew that shows up knows me. And, of course, we had a, a hard line out. We had, it, we had it knocked down within a few seconds. We were already charged and everything, and it was just the bed that was kind of on fire. And, and the captain looked at me and looked at this burned out room and he said this is your work isn't it Don? I'm, I'm still holding the lighter you know <laughs> said, yeah jesus <laughs> so at that point they decided that uh <clears throat> they weren't going to do any more tests for me uh which is which was too bad because we learned a lot from the tests that we were able to do there over the years but uh, uh it made the local papers the sacramento bee had had uh had an article about local fire expert, you know, things going wrong. And, of course, you know, and, and, and you know, although I don't think they ever led to any kind of wrongful conclusions but uh, or prosecutions, but the the whole thing about spontaneous human combustion right. has, is one of the hardest myths to stamp out. You know, we think we finally convinced people about spalling and grazing of glass and floor patterns and stuff like that. But every time they have a burned body, they go, hmm, could it be spontaneous? So, you know, I, when I give a lecture on combustion of bodies, I said, in case anybody has to leave early, there is no such thing <laughs> as spontaneous <laughs> human combustion. Yes, there are products like ketones, acetone, and stuff like that produced in the body, and yes, those are flammable outside the body in sufficient quantities, but there is no process inside the body that's going to ignite them or anything around them. It's always, you know, it's almost always an accident. It's really hard to do intentionally, as it turns out, but uh, it's almost always an accident. And if the trace evidence survives the fire and the suppression, those cases can be solved. You know, I've, I've, uh, Santa Ana had one, and the lady burned to death right inside her door, right inside her, her apartment door. Luckily, that was the extent of the fire. So the fire crew reached reached around the half-open door, squirted it once, and it went out. So there was no suppression, no tearing apart walls or anything. And you could see the trail of burned cloths and burned plastic from the food dish that she set on fire at the stove. And, of course, normal reaction is instead of turning around and throwing it in the sink, where did she do? what did she do? She picked it up and headed for the only exit, the front door. Mm. She had a loose top. Flames, as she moved forward, the flames hit the loose top, and she, you know, ignited the top, looked down, and went, <clears throat> and that was it. That, That's amazing. That ended her right there. And so she collapsed. Uh, and burned just inside the back, uh, inside the front door. But it was because the trace evidence <laughs> that that uh, you were, that they were able to recreate the the path. Because the the ignition source, the the stove actually was still on. But in you know many cases, even if if the victim hasn't turned the stove off, very often the first in fire crew turns it off. And so the poor investigator is going, well, how did this happen? There's no ignition sources. Well, there was. <laughs> it was in another room, <laughs> or it got turned off, or 
displaced or knocked over or whatever, you know. So, so yeah, those are those are always kind of kind of interesting. Wow, you know, I I I could listen all day, and, I, and I'm sure uh, people who are listening to this now are thinking the same thing. I uh, normally we have our podcast stay at around a half hour, and I'm just sitting here having a blast listening to the stories, and I'm I'm very grateful for you sharing it. I I have one final question before we sure. wrap it up, and that is. Uh, so I'm a new fire investigator that just got minted, and I'm headed out there. What's a, what's a piece of advice from Dr. Dahan? Document everything. Take lots of pictures, lots of notes before anything is disturbed, and then you know process the scene systematically and document as you go. That's the single biggest thing is that you can always go back, and when you start asking well, could this have happened? Could that have happened? If you don't have the documentation, you can't test those hypotheses, and then you're you're left to guess. That's you, you don't want to guess in these kinds of things. And it's actually one of the advantages of digital photography now. You know, I, I you know I look at cases that was done in the in the 80s, and you you call the investigator and say there's only 24 pictures. Well, they only gave they only allowed us to use one <laughs> roll of film. At a scene. And so, you know, it was 24 pictures, and then we were done. And you go, you can't preserve a scene with 24 <laughs> pictures. Well, now, yes, you can overdo it with too many pictures with a digital um, and forget to label it and forget to make a log of it so that five years later when you're going to go to court, you're able to look at your log or your list of where was I standing when I took that picture and what was I trying to, you know, preserve. That's gotten to be a big job working with the photography and doing all the logging. Um, yeah. Just the organization. And, and, you know, the and people people forget to do it because they say, well, I'll remember that. Yeah, maybe for a few hours or a day, they don't realize that the next time they see those pictures might be in court five years later. Yeah. And, you know, all the, everybody's entitled to know, well, what does this picture show? Um. <laughs> that's not a good answer when you go um or you guess no and uh so you know the technology is out there to make it make it happen um keep the science in mind and you know don't fall into the trap of of uh, you know quick and dirty answers single indicators and stuff like that always be willing to say well what about and that's why i always got in trouble as a scientist you know, I, whether it was an ordinary crime scene or a fire or explosion, and I'd, I'd look around, especially if the investigators had been there for, you know, a couple of days and they knew, you know, they thought they knew what was going on. I said, well, what about that? Well, what about it? I said, well, you know, is that impossible? Well, we don't know. I'm, I'm notorious for asking about the dog. Uh, there's a fatal fire scene that I did and that I looked at <clears throat> for a colleague uh, in the Bay Area, and uh, the lady died, you know, at her at her dining room table, literally, and caught fire, dropped cigarette in, in the in the clothes she was wearing and stuff like that. And I said, I said, what happened to the dog? What dog? And I said, well, there was a dog in the house. Did anybody find it? Do you know? Was it alive? Was it dead? Was it sick? Was it poisoned? <clears throat> well. You and your damn dogs. I said, he said, how do you know there's a dog? And I said, there's a bag of dog food in a water dish by the back door. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
you and your damn dogs. I don't get so did they find the dog? Because, you know, that in, in fatal fires, there's another living, breathing object uh, system that's exposed to the same threats. Yeah. And I've had dogs, uh, you know, kicked and shot and stabbed and, and poisoned, uh, as well as dying from the fire. And it's important. You know, I had one murder case in, in uh, back east, and the, the, the doer, actually, um, uh, claimed that this stranger came in through the through a back window. All the, all the doors were double-bolted and locked from the inside and stuff like that. So she had actually staged a, a cut screen in a back window. And she said, well, a bad guy came in through that back window, and he poured gasoline through the living room, and I came down just as he was leaving. And I realized that there was a big dog crate in the next room, literally five feet away from where this guy had to be standing. And they found the dog dead of smoke inhalation in that crate. It was a warmer on it. And I said, well, didn't the dog bark? No. <laughs> Nobody heard the dog. And I said, well, I realize it sounds like a line from Sherlock Holmes, but, you know, there's something unusual about the dog in the nighttime. Well, it didn't make any noise. That's what's unusual. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of weird offside stuff that you know scientists think about, and and uh, an investigator, you know, looking at the burn patterns doesn't want to doesn't want to be bothered with what happened to the dog. But that may be key. Maybe. Thanks a lot for your time today. You betcha, Rod. My pleasure. Uh, good luck. Uh, good luck with this program. And it's a piece uh, of cake, John. I mean, really, all we do is turn it on now, let you talk, and uh, edit out the couple <laughs> of times where I stammered. And this is going to be a great podcast. Okay, man. Call anytime. Appreciate it, John. Be you well. You betcha. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. And that's it for this podcast from CFITrainer.net for the International Association of Arson Investigators. I'm Rod Ammon. We very much appreciate John DeHaan's time with us today and uh, hope all of you enjoy the beginning of this summer and take care of yourselves and be safe out there. Wear the equipment that uh, keeps your lungs and your body safe as well. Till the next time.